This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Mike Yusin, director of the Leadership Center here. And I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Ann Greenhall, who is the deputy director of the McNulty Leadership Program here at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. And by the way, new episodes of our show can uh, be found. They premiere every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern here on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. So, and before we turn to our extremely interesting guests, given the uh, many events of the last year and maybe over the last 24 hours, especially, just a quick question to you about uh, the momentous news this morning that uh, the president and the first lady have been both diagnosed uh, positively for COVID-19. So just your quick take on how that's going to change the world. For me, it was a game changer. How about for you? Game changer for sure, uh, Mike. And I'm delighted to see that our executive director, Jeff Klein, has also joined us. So I'll, I'll start and then maybe Jeff can chime in if he likes. Well, Mike, we know from the literature that in a time of crisis that we tend to look for more um, decisive, sometimes autocratic decision-making. But in this case, where we have a president who's been affected by COVID-19, um, his ability to uh, act is in question, <laughs> is in question. I also know from a conversation long with you and work that you've done on crisis management that, that crisis management is often handled best when, when leadership is distributed, distributed across all of the layers of an organization. So, you know, with those two thoughts, it's going to be very interesting to see how this crisis unfolds. All right, and thank you, Annette. So, Jeff, uh, as you picked up the news this morning, just a comment on where the heck the country and maybe the world's going in light of the news you've heard. Well, Mike, I mean, I think it, it certainly kicks off a new round of sense-making. Um, <laughs> not that maybe there's been that much sense uh, up to date, but, you know, I, I, I think it forces everyone to take a look at uh, personal choices and takes you know, and, and their relationship to uh, authority. And I think from here, we, we possibly see a, a recalibration, though. I would imagine the sense-making will go in, in every direction before it centers, uh, you know, in, into something maybe a little bit more rational. John, thank you on that. And just to add my own thought with a segue to where we're going here, uh, we know from lots of research and our intuition always says the same thing, that the search for leadership uh, sense-making becomes more vital when uncertainty is very mm -hmm. high. And we're in an era now where there are many media channels by which we can make sense, uh, some productive, some pernicious, and that's going to be among our topics today as we now turn to our guest, uh, Sanan Aral, welcome to the program. Great to have you here, especially today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So, Sanan, I'm going to offer a couple words about you and then just plunge right in. Uh, you're on the MIT 
faculty. In fact, uh, I was just looking a little bit at your background. You're a professor. Listen carefully, everybody, in management, marketing, IT, and data science. Um, and I, 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 I say that uh, with applause because these are the areas we actually need to pull together to make sense of, uh, of our world and maybe especially what happened overnight. You're also director of MIT's initiative on the digital economy and head of MIT's social analytics lab. And uh, Sanan, maybe just one, one more very important fact here. You published just a couple of weeks ago uh, a title, listen to the book title, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, Our Health, and How We Must Adopt, Adapt rather, How We Must Adapt. And that's going to be our central focus as we plunge right in. I'm going to get us going. We're going to work uh, around the room here in our dialogue with you, obviously. Uh, help us understand uh, what led you to put all your thinking a decade of research together uh, at this time in this particular form. So, Sanan, over to you. Why did you write the book? I guess I'll put it that way more, more simply. Well, one of the hottest movies on the planet today is called The Social Dilemma. It's certainly the hottest movie on Netflix. Uh, you may be hearing about uh, it in general. It is a clarion call for the dangers of social media. And it's not the first. It's actually in a long line of recent books and movies, for instance, like The Great Hack or Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff or Zucked, uh, which, is, which are really a clarion call or a warning signal about the dangers of social media. Um, and my book really takes off where those movies and books leave off, which is to say, what do we do if we actually wanted to roll up our sleeves and do something about this social media crisis? What would we do to really solve the problems that exist? And the argument of the book is that uh, social media has a tremendous amount of promise, as well as the potential for a tremendous amount of peril. We had... Uh, sort of a decade of techno-utopianism where social media was going to connect the world, enable us to collaborate, have meaningful human connection, deliver life-saving information, create free speech, enable social movements, and so on. And this was followed by a decade of techno-dystopianism in which social media was a pariah. And uh, the argument of the book is that we can achieve the promise of social media and avoid the peril but to do so, we have to stop armchair theorizing about it and get serious about the science under the hood and how we rigorously fix the problems. That's great. And just to stay on that for one more minute on my part, I really am drawn to the, uh, the final subtitle and how we must adapt and your final comments. Uh, we've understood there's so many problems in that world. We're vexed by them uh, for sure. And the essence of leadership, this is something that we have long offered up in the classroom and beyond, is to work with your circumstances and solve the problem. Get onto it. We wring our hands. We complain. But uh, if leadership is nothing else, it is a matter of recognizing what's out there, taking charge, and making a difference. So that said, how we must adapt, what would be your number one line of guidance for how we ought to rethink how we can begin to address the problem and turn the social media to good and move beyond the uh, sometimes the harsh underbelly that we've recognized now for well for more than a decade yeah so um 
the book is really aimed at three different audiences, the uh, platforms and the platform leaders, the policymakers and the people. So the platforms are the Mark Zuckerbergs and Jack Dorsey's of the world. Uh, the policymakers are the congressmen and women that are thinking about how to regulate and deal with the market failures of social media. And the people are you and me, ordinary citizens who use social media every day. And it's equally addressing all three of those audiences. The book proposes that there are four levers that these three groups have to steer social media away from the impending rocks and towards calmer waters. And those are money, code, norms, and laws. Money is the business models that create the incentives for how people act in this ecosystem. So uh, it's incentives for how the platforms act, but it's also incentives for how users act in response to the way the platforms are designed. Code is the design of the digital social networks and the algorithms that run them, the feed algorithms and the friend suggestion algorithms. These are all covered in excruciating detail in the book with some surprising stories about how they're affecting our everyday lives. Norms are how we adopt the technology uh, as users and what kind of uh, social values we put into them. And laws are obviously the regulation that deals with market failure. The number one, uh, and the last chapter of the book is the longest chapter in the book. It's really dedicated to very specific recommendations on all of the major policy questions surrounding social media. For instance, antitrust, should we break up Facebook? Should there be federal privacy legislation? What should it look like? How do we balance free speech and harmful speech? Should we uh, be uh, circumscribing Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act? How do we deal with fake news? How do we deal with election integrity given social media interference by Russia and others. Each one of those is covered in turn, but the main fundamental underlying uh, prerequisite to solving the problem is competition. There isn't enough competition in this market, and that is the reason that none of the platforms have an incentive to innovate towards societal values. Uh, they are very um, happy achieving abnormal profits because there's not enough competition. But the number one politically uh, expedient recommendation that's given to achieve competition is uh, antitrust to, for instance, break up Facebook. And I published an article in the Harvard Business Review yesterday, which argues along the lines of the book that breaking up Facebook will not solve any of social media's problems. In fact, it's going to make them worse uh, because breaking up Facebook is like putting a Band-Aid on a tumor. We need more structural reforms to achieve competition in the market and then to deal with the market failures. And we can get into why I believe antitrust is not the solution, but that structural reform of the social media economy is. So now that's great. Let's come back in a few minutes to structural reforms. But before that, I want to bring Anne and Jeff into mm. the dialogue. Anne, why don't you get us going with your questions as well? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, Sanan, really a pleasure to speak with you. And you've packed a wallop in your first uh, answer to Mike's question. If I could maybe go backwards for a moment, you alluded to the science and how we need to pay attention to the science behind 
the promise and the peril. Can you just say a little bit more about that? Yeah, so I've actually been researching social media for 20 years. I started four years before Facebook was founded, uh, and I've been researching it ever since. Along the lines in those 20 years, uh, myself and my colleagues around the world have published a very significant number of peer-reviewed research articles about the impacts of social media. Just to give you an example, we published a paper on the cover of Science Magazine in 2018 about the spread of fake news online, where we studied 10 years of Twitter data examining the diffusion of all of the true and false verified news stories that ever spread on Twitter for 10 years. And what we found was very scary. We found that false news traveled farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information that we studied. And this is one of hundreds of studies that are cited and discussed in the book. And the point uh, of the science under the hood is to say that sometimes social media does not work the way you think it does. And if we start to regulate or change its design without thinking about exactly uh, what the science is telling us about how it works and how we can improve it, we're going to uh, make a significant number of errors in trying to fix these problems. If I could ask just one follow-up, and then I know uh, Mike will want to remind our listeners (laughs) that they're listening to Leadership in Action. But before we do that, um, can you draw a line? So understanding the science, Uh, Can you draw a line to how that might inform uh, a step that we would take in order to get the best out of social media? Absolutely. So a great example is the economics literature that's been written on social media. So the social media ecosystem and the social media economy runs on network effects, which means that the value of any of the platforms is a function of the number of users that are on the platform. These underlying market economics tend towards concentration in industries run by network effects. And so if you break up Facebook, you'll just tip the next Facebook-like company into dominance. And so it is not a sustainable solution to the competition problem in social media. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are other solutions that would address network effects-driven concentration in these types of economies, but that's just one example of how science helps us make the right decisions about solving the problems. Another quick set is how do we deal with fake news? At the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, we've been uh, doing very large-scale studies in the hundreds of millions of consumers, uh, as well as experimental lab studies on what works to reduce the belief in false news and the propagation and sharing of false news. We need to rely on that science to devise our solutions to false news. Great. Thank you, Sinan. So, so I'm, I'm going to pause for a second uh, and anticipated uh, what I'm about to say, and that is a reminder to our listeners. This is Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, uh, hosted by the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. I'm Mike Yassim. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall. And our guest today is MIT professor Sanan Aral, author of the new book, The Hype Machine, subtitled How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and our health and how we must adapt. And uh, as I said at the outset, it could not be more timely because um, Ann and Jeff, the last time I looked, I think we got an election coming up in about a month. <laughs> All that said, Jeff, over to you. 
Right. Thanks, Mike, and, and thanks again, Sanan, for being here. Um, you know, the, this discussion of uh, uh, fake news, or I have to say, I, I, I feel slightly smarter even just calling it false news as opposed mm -hmm. to fake news. Mm -hmm. um, but, but I wonder if, if you could talk about some of what you've discovered about, about the impacts of fake news, um, either on previous elections or upon, you know, the, the nation's ability uh, just to understand what's happening. Yeah, so uh, I detail, so the second chapter in the book is called uh, The End of Reality, which is all about how the, uh, you know, the rise of false news, fake news, I like both terms. Uh, sometimes it's really f obviously faked. Sometimes it's what we call mixed news, which is sometimes which is the most insidious, I think, because it's mm. it's falsity wrapped in truth. So there are elements of truth in the in the in the news, but it's got the the kernel of falsity, which is the whole purpose. It's it's kind of like a tr Trojan horse mm. of falsity wrapped in truth. Um, and uh, this chapter really goes through uh, all of the data that we know over the last, you know, 15 years of this rise of falsity in our society and what the consequences of that might be. And it focuses on three outcomes, uh, which are democracy and elections, uh, public health, as well as markets. And so I'll just give you a, a, an example of each of those three. So in terms of democracy and elections, obviously, in 2016, uh, we saw a sweeping attempt at manipulating the election by Russia. We know they spread uh, manipulative messages to 126 million people on Facebook, 20 million people on Instagram, 10 million tweets to, from accounts with 6 million followers on Twitter, and 43 hours of YouTube content in the months leading up to the election. In 2020, uh, they're more sophisticated and we're no more prepared than we were in 2016. So in 2020, they are no longer um, uh, impersonating real people. They're nudging real people to spread false news, to get around platform policies, around inauthentic accounts. They've moved their servers to domestic soil to avoid surveillance because our intelligence agencies are more legally constrained and surveilling domestically. They've infiltrated Iran's cyber war department, perhaps to launch attacks made to look like they came from Tehran. And this is all happening during a global pandemic while we have uh, civil unrest in the streets arising from the justifiable social movements around police brutality in the United States. And there's a lot of questions about in-person voting. There's a lot of questions about by-mail voting. Uh, it's a very tense and uncertain situation. And so that's the exact situation in which manipulative false news can be very dangerous. I also tell the story in terms of markets uh, of the false tweet uh, that the AP News put out in 2013, which said that Barack Obama had been injured or killed in an explosion in the White House. And this wasn't true. This was false because Syrian hackers had hacked the AP Twitter handle. And this tweet went viral. And since the hype machine, the social media industrial complex, is hooked into, for instance, trading algorithms that trade on the sentiment in social media, it sent the stock market crashing and it wiped out $140 billion of equity value in a matter of minutes. And that's from one tweet. Imagine we have trillions of tweets every day, how that's more subtly moving stock prices, business outcomes, and so on. And then finally, public health. We're obviously very concerned about misinformation around coronavirus. 
at MIT at the initiative on the digital economy, we run the largest global survey on uh, COVID behaviors, norms, and perceptions in collaboration with Facebook and the WHO. And one of the things we track is vaccine confidence. How confident are you in, a, in an eventual vaccine and will you take it? And what we're seeing is that when news comes out related to the vaccine, sometimes true, sometimes false, it can dramatically move the needle on vaccine confidence and that is going to be a big part of how quickly or if we get out of this pandemic. But COVID was just the next example. Before that, it was measles. You know, in 2019, we had a massive 1,800% increase in measles. Measles, one of the deadliest diseases on the planet, one of the most contagious, was eradicated in the U.S. in the year 2000, only 63 cases in 2010. In 2019, 1,250 cases in just the first six months. And when you dig into the data like I did, you see clusters of outbreaks in places like Rockland County, New York, and Clark County, Washington. And then when you compare that to the ad buys of, of anti-vax content on Facebook, what you see is that they're directly targeted at those communities. So there's a big impact of a potential, potentially huge impact of fake news on the election, but it's much broader than that. It affects markets, businesses, and even our public health. My goodness. Um, yeah. <laughs> that is, How's your morale, uh, Jeff? <laughs> uh, you know, I'm a hopeless optimist, but... Okay. So, so now, what what does a listener do with that? Um, how, how do we respond to that kind of analysis um, and continue to engage in, in the world and in social media? Well, I just want to remind uh, your listeners that this book, unlike some other books and or movies that are out right now, is not all just doom and gloom. It really does also remind us uh, over and over again of the tremendous promise that social media has. Um, you know, you know, things like uh, the Nepalese earthquake, where Facebook raised more for disaster relief than Europe and the United States combined. Uh, you know, it raised a quarter of a billion dollars for ALS research in eight weeks. It is a very powerful tool for positive social change. And there are numerous examples of that in the book. In terms of what can we do, so, and specifically in terms of fake news and given the election coming around the corner, I don't, I'm not holding my breath for Congress to adopt any of the very sensible recommendations that I make in the book in terms of legislative things between now and 30 days from now. Uh, but I think we should get right on that after the election is over. And I make a, a very specific set of recommendations on how we systematically uh, and dramatically uh, reduce the effect of false news on our elections, democracy, our public health, and our, um, and our markets. But uh, between now and 30 days from now, what uh, individual citizens can do is actually surprisingly a lot. So it turns out that when we are reflective we believe fake news less and we share it less. Uh, and so just thinking critically about what we're reading is important. Uh, and the 80-20 rule applies to manipulative fake news in that the vast majority of it can be debunked with just a couple of clicks. Uh, what our research at Twitter showed was that fake news is shocking, surprising, salacious, anger-inducing, blood-boiling, uh, and that's why we share it uh, in large part. And so if you are feeling 
your blood boiling uh, upon a, you know, upon seeing some fake news, uh, doing a Google search, being reflective and just kind of taking a step back and taking your emotional pulse is really, really important. So one of the things that I see most often when fake news comes across my social media is the preamble. I don't know if this is true, but it's really interesting. If it is, here's a share. We got to stop doing that because it's designed to be really interesting if it's true, but it's not true. That's the whole point of it. Also check the sources. So a lot of times these are obvious fake news sites masquerading as true news. Um, uh, and so those simple steps can go a long way to dampening the effect of fake news in the upcoming election. So now, as you've looked uh, across media, many, many different uh, channels over uh, actually many years now, what fraction, if we can get it down to that, of what's out there, whatever the medium, would fall in the category of false news? Is it 1%? Is it 20%? How on guard do we have to be? What do you think? Well, I actually think that's the wrong question. And the reason I believe that is because the the volume, it's not clear to me that the volume of false news is the right predictor of the impact of false news. And I'll tell you why. So the answer to your question is it's, it's a small fraction of overall news in general. But a couple of things happen that make it, uh, that make it particularly uh, influential, which is one, there's a broader feedback cycle into, uh, into uh, more mainstream media. So uh, fake news or false news traveling across social media will at times be picked up and broadcast by uh, mainstream media outlets uh, and cause real-world consequences as a result of that. Secondly, while the fraction of false news that is in any given person's media diet is small, it is broadly touching many, many people. So uh, as I mentioned, 126 million people received fake news messages from Russia in the 2016 US presidential election. That was probably you know, less than 5% of their total information consumption, but an individual piece of false news like that can be more uh, engaging, hyping up, and therefore more behavior and opinion changing potentially uh, than, um, than true news might be because true news is a little bit more run of the mill. It's constrained by reality. It doesn't quite kind of shock us. We know from the, from the uh, cognitive science literature that human attention is drawn to novelty and false news is dramatically more novel uh, than the truth. And so really the, the question isn't uh, what, is, what is the volume of false news, but what, what is the relative impact of false news on beliefs and behavior given its volume? And I think that there we have numerous examples of uh, potentially very dramatic impacts. So here's a, a thank you, Annette. Here's a quick follow-up question. Bringing business into the discussion here for a few minutes, many of our listeners are... Uh, running uh, enterprise or in, or in in the economy directly one way or the other. If I'm an enterprise and I'm looking at a lot of news out there about my enterprise, what customers think, um, all the things that are tracked these days by, by companies, what kind of a, a detector, almost like a radioactivity detector, should I have at hand 
as I look at what's being said about me to know what what fraction is either primarily false at the, the first part of our discussion just now, or maybe secondarily false in that it's reproduced and conveyed by others, even though it's not originated by them. So I think to give the question a sharp edge, for a person managing an enterprise responsible for communications, how can they best um, determine when information about the company is coming in falsely or correctly? Yeah, I think it relates to the to the last question, which is um, the difference between total volume and specific memes. So let me give you a couple of examples, which might shock some of your listeners. When Indra Nui, uh, after the 2016 election, she's the former uh, CEO of PepsiCo, uh, she was interviewed um, uh, by the New York, uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin was interviewing her. And it was right after the election and she asked, uh, he asked her opinion about it and she congratulated President Trump on his victory, said that we needed unity, but also expressed that she wasn't, uh, she was a Clinton supporter, she was, um, you know, not happy with the result and so on. This got turned into a meme that basically went viral on social media that conservatives weren't welcome with Pepsi, that basically, you know, if you're conservative, you know, Pepsi is rejecting you. This caused the largest drop in Pepsi's reputation in, in the entire year, uh, even more so than three quarters of poor uh, performance did in terms of its brand reputation. So, and that's one story uh, that can have such a big effect. When President Trump in uh, 2018 uh, falsely claimed that uh, Amazon was evading taxes, uh, it uh, it reduced Amazon's stock price uh, the largest amount in two years. So individual stories can have a major impact. And so what I would recommend is that uh, enterprises monitor all of the narratives that are happening and really start to think about what is going to be the likely reputational impact of this specific story or that specific story? And how much is this specific story or that specific story that might impact me going viral? Um, the book really has in the center of it between chapters six through nine, uh, sort of playbook, a blocking and tackling for enterprises for the social media age. So it really is uh, covering a lot of the you know, I teach digital marketing uh, at MIT um, and social media analytics. And all of those things that I've learned in that area are also deeply covered in the book. So, so before we leave that, uh, if you could offer up an example, if I'm the communications person at company X, let's make it uh, Pepsi by way of recent, recent example in our conversation, what are the steps that I need to do knowing that there is now significant risk in the damage that can come from false news? What are, uh, what's an example of a step I should be very savvy about and ready to go with? Yep. So I think that uh, what I, you know, what I describe this as, as I teach it to my students at MIT is called social listening. So it's essentially the concept that uh, we have moved to from an era of broadcast media to an era of uh, you know, splintered real-time conversations with millions of consumers happening 
uh, you know, in real time. And so we have to be monitoring all of those conversations. And one can do that, depending on the size of your enterprise, one can do that manually with a small team or uh, with either an outsource provider or an internal team that uses automated tools to uh, uh, measure, engage the sentiment about our brand on social media, um, and then to dig into specific memes that are uh, contributing to increases or decreases in that in the brand value or brand reputation there. Uh, and then given a specific story that is having uh, a, an undue effect on brand reputation, then we need to get in there and really address it directly and head on uh, and not let it kind of take its own life, uh, you know, uh, uh, have a life of its own, so to speak. Great. Good guidance. And let's bring you into the conversation again. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, Sinan, we've talked a bit about the audiences that you address in your book. We've touched on people. You gave us uh, hope by way of reflection to be critical thinkers and listeners when we hear uh, news over social media. Mike asked you about enterprise, and we've touched on platforms. I'd like to move to policy a little bit and just ask you uh, to say a little more about what recommendations you would make from that point of view. Yeah. So... Um as the last chapter opens, it begins by arguing essentially that competition is the entry ticket to the playing field of solving this problem, that that is really the underlying fundamental market economics that is making it difficult for us to incentivize the platforms to behave well. Uh, and in order to achieve competition, what I recommend is not breaking up Facebook uh, but rather imposing uh, interoperability and social network portability. What does that mean? Well, yeah. it's analogous to number portability in the cell phone market that we uh, legislatively impose in Europe and the United States. So it used to be that you couldn't take your cell phone number with you, for instance, if you switched from Verizon to Sprint, um, and we legislated that that, uh, that that be reversed, that you should be able to take your social, your, your uh, number with you. Now, back in the, when there was no social media and there was just cell phones, your cell phone number was your social network because everyone knew to call you at that number. So it was essentially analogous to being able to take your network with you from Verizon to Sprint when you switched. That ability to switch forced competition in the telecommunications industry. So there was a large study done over many years in Europe when they introduced number portability into the cell phone market. And what it showed was that it was dramatic increases in competition, $880 million of consumer surplus every quarter on average for 15 years. And we actually did the same thing, by the way, in instant messaging when uh, AOL's AIM messenger, uh, AOL Instant Messenger, was the dominant player with 65% uh, of the market. We forced them to become interoperable with Yahoo Messenger and MSN Messenger. They steadily lost market share over three years and then ceded the entire market to Facebook, Google, and Apple just a few short years after that. What we need is we need the social media platforms to be interoperable and we need uh, social network and data portability. Right now, our social networks and our data are locked into the platforms. And in fact, data is a very bad word to use there because it's really 
our relationships, our very memories. I use Instagram as a scrapbook and um, our very memories are locked up in there and we can't take them with us. And so we can't vote with our feet, meaning we can't switch platforms based on, well, Facebook has a lot of fake news or doesn't really protect my privacy well. And I don't have the ability to switch very easily because all my friends are there and all my data and pictures and things I've liked are there. When that becomes interoperable and portable, it forces competition. And then once we have competition, uh, we can deal with every one of the market failures that we all know exist from privacy to fake news and so on. And in that chapter, I go into each of those after the section on competition. Mm. I'm going to break. On, thank you. I'm going to break in for just a minute to remind everybody that you were tuned in to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm Mike Yuseem. I'm here with Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall, and we are in active discussion with MIT professor Sinan Aral, author of The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. So with that, over to Jeff. Sinan, we've... Uh maybe in a meandering way, but I feel like we're hitting many of the, uh, you know, main factors in your framework. I'd love to talk about the, the norms piece of this and, and what, what users as a community can really do to promote appropriate behavior and then um, police the kind of behavior that uh, is, is causing some of the impact you're talking about. So one of the major concepts in the book is what I call the hype loop, which is the dynamic interplay of machine intelligence and human agency. The machine gives us recommendations, friend recommendations, newsfeed, what to read, who to friend, what to buy in the form of advertisements. We take some of those recommendations, discard others, and then we also post our own content. The machine then reads all of that, optimizes an algorithm to give us new suggestions. So it turns out that what we put into this machine uh, in large part determines what we get out of it. And I'll give you two examples. So my friend and colleague, Iyad Rowan, who used to be at MIT and is now at the Max Planck Institute, did this really interesting study on algorithms that label images on social media. And he used the same algorithm, the labeling algorithm, and created an experiment where he fed one version of it a steady stream of violent content and another version of it a steady stream of, of peaceful, normal, nice content. And then he subjected these two algorithms to a Rorschach inkblot test uh, that, and said, okay, describe what you see in these inkblots. The, and he called uh, the one that he fed violence to uh, Norman after the movie Psycho uh, and so it was Norman AI and normal AI. And what he found was that Norman AI saw violence everywhere. So he would label uh, the he, she, it would label um, Rorschach inkblots, uh, you know, a man getting killed by a gunshot wound, man getting stabbed, woman being run over by a car, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And the other one would label it differently. And so the machine responds to what we put into it. Another great example is Tay, Microsoft's chatbot uh, that was on Twitter. Uh, and it was designed essentially to talk with people in a normal way and so on. But it was, uh, it was abused and bullied by being fed a steady diet of racist, sexist, 
um, you know, authoritarian content. And then it started spewing back that exact same content and they had to shut it down. The very interesting thing about that story, though, is that the exact same Tay chatbot was uh, released by Microsoft in China. And because China's internet is so censored, it didn't have any of those problems because it wasn't fed a steady diet of racist, sexist content. That's not to say I'm not advocating censorship. And when you read the book, you'll realize that I'm very much an advocate of free speech. But it does tell an interesting story about uh, how what we put into the hype machine is what we get out of it. It sort of reflects us back at ourselves. Uh, There was a good study done um, on Reddit where a randomized experiment was conducted where uh, a list of norms was posted randomly to some threads but not others. And what the experiment found was that expression of positive norms regulated the way people discussed issues, reduced the amount of abuse, increased the amount of new uh, users' contributions by 70%, reduced the amount of churn, uh, people leaving because they were being abused, reduced the sexism, racism, and comments that were just by an expression of norms posted to the top of the thread randomly by an experimenter. And so that, those are three examples of how norms are such an important part of what we get out of social media. And if I can just ask one quick follow-up, uh, Sanad, what, what we know about norms in groups is that there needs to be some kind of enforcement mechanism, whether that is a leader holding group members accountable, group members holding each other accountable, strong degrees of self-discipline. How does that mechanism translate in the social media world? Well, I think that, um, you know, I I have a whole chapter on the wisdom of crowds, uh, which is to say that James Surowiecki wrote this great book in uh, 2004, The Wisdom of Crowds, And the only problem, I love that book, by the way, I've read it multiple times. The only problem with that book is it was written the same year that Facebook was invented. And Facebook undermines the three basic pillars of the wisdom of crowds, which are uh, independence of opinions, diversity of opinions, and equality of opinions. And what we have in social media is the exact opposite. We're hyper-socialized, so our opinions are not independent. Uh, We have clustered polarization so that there's not, you know, there's these echo chambers, there's not enough diversity in any given person's feed. And uh, we don't have equality. We have tremendously skewed distributions of influence where some people have trillion, you know, hundreds of millions of followers and other people have very few. Uh, And so it's not an equal share of voice. And I think that to answer your question is twofold. Uh, One is that we need um, groups or communities to express their values in the way that the experimenter did on Reddit by sort of institutionalizing what's appropriate behavior and what's not appropriate, appropriate behavior. When you look at the studies of the wisdom of crowds, what you find is that the structure of having influencers in a social network, it can be good or bad. And it depends on how wise the influencers are. So the second answer to your question is that we need influencers that have a moral compass and that are being very careful with their influence, which we currently do not really have. uh, And we need more of that. Great. Uh, I'm going to break in, uh, Sanan, at this point and suggest we take our remaining about five minutes to help our listeners appreciate what they really want to hang on from our discussion right now and obviously from your book. 
This is a, a kind of an after action review that we anticipated here at the outset. We would be doing uh, as we've done at the end of every show. So I'm going to begin, uh, Sanan, with you. If, if uh, in a nutshell, uh, what would you like people to hang on to for what from what you said today, and uh, obviously above all from your book, that ought to most affect how they think, how they act, and how they behave in the years to come? What do you think? Well, so I think the the key takeaway from the book is that. Uh, we, you know, social media holds the potential for tremendous promise. I described numerous examples of Herculean uh, uh, movings of the needle in society in a positive way due to social media, but it also has the potential for tremendous peril. And right now, uh, you know, we are at a crossroads. We are at a crossroads between privacy on one hand and insecurity on the other hand, or free speech and hate speech, truth and falsity, you know, democracy and authoritarianism, meaningful human connection on one hand, and uh, echo chambers that threaten to polarize us and pull us apart on the other. And really, we're, this crossroads, what we do next in the next 18 to 24 months is going to be incredibly important to how social media evolves uh, in the coming uh, years. And I think that in order to steer this towards the promise and away from the peril, I, which I believe is possible, we really have to take a scientific uh, look under the hood of how social media works in a rigorous, nuanced way and get very serious about very specific uh, recommendations for policymakers, uh, the people, and the platforms uh, that can really help us solve these problems. This is really an existential crisis because social media has it, such a dramatic impact on our society. Uh, you know, if you've uh, liked watching the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, or are scared by it, um, you know, my book is intended to take off where that leaves off with a more uh, not all gloom and doom perspective and a, and a kind of perspective on what do we do if we really wanted to roll our sleeves up? What do we do? Great. Thank you. Really, really interesting. Jeff, over to you for a, a, no, no more than about a minute here. We're getting close to the end. Sure. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm going to carry two things with me in particular. Um, one, I, I saw Anne smile because at least we can see each other while you know the listeners only hear our voices. Uh, when when Sinan was drawing the parallels to the the telecom industry of the eighties mm -hmm. and, and early two thousands, um, so to me, social media interoperability is really a game changer. And then you know, return to the personal. Um, engaging in social media in the same kind of intentional, reflective way uh, that we engage in conversation with each other. Yep, thanks. Anne? Yeah, all of the above. And I'm just really struck how leadership matters, <laughs> that this decision-making and moves forward require a moral compass and a choice. <laughs> and we are in serious need of leadership with a moral compass. And Anne, just to pick up on what you've said there, but also earlier, along with everything else that's been said, uh, we, we do tout the uh, the concept of distributed leadership, or to yeah. put it more graphically, I think everybody, wherever they are, can make a difference. And they can especially make a difference when the world hangs in balance. And uh, 
uh, Sanan offered the phrase, it's an existential moment. And uh, I think that's a great way to capture the fact that the world can go this way or can go that way. And it's going to depend on uh, people like the four of us and uh, lots of people out there in Congress and uh, just uh, walking the, the everyday steps we all take to jump in. And here's how, here's how I'm going to end, uh, recognizing the serious concerns that have been so well expressed by Sanan today and in his book, and at the same time picking up on the other half of his book, here's what we can do, and it's up to us now to make that difference. So with that, uh, Sanan, I want to thank you for joining us on the program. People know where to buy your book. How would they find out more about you at MIT? Uh, Sinanaral.io, S-I-N-A-N-A-R-A-L.io. Great. So thank you for being on the program. want to thank everybody, in fact, for joining us. If you've got a question, you know where to follow uh, up with us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, we're on Twitter as well. Special thanks yet again to Sanan Aral. I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, uh, Chris Took. And uh, just by way of closing here, I'm Mike Yuseem. I've been uh, in dialogue with you and Jeff Klein and Ann Greenhall, you've been listening, of course, to Leadership in Action, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. Stay safe. Tune in next week. Thank you very much. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 